Welcome to the Weird Era Podcast. Today I'm talking to author Joe Hamia. Joe Hamia was born in London in 1997. After living in Miami for a few years, she completed an English degree at King's College London and a MST in Contemporary Literature and Culture at Oxford University. There she divided her research between updating 20th century cultural theory into 21st century digital contexts and the impact of social media on form and questions of identity in contemporary women's writing. Since leaving Oxford, she has worked as a copy editor for Tadler and edited manuscripts subsequently published by Edinburgh University Press and Doubleday UK. She has also written for the Financial Times. Three Rooms is her first novel. She lives in London. A woman must have money in a room of her own, so said Virginia Woolf in her classic A Room of One's Own. But in this scrupulously observed, gorgeously wrought debut novel, Joe Hamia pushes that adage powerfully into the 21st century to a generation of people living in rented rooms. What a woman needs now is an apartment of her own, the ultimate mark of financial stability, unattainable for many. Set over the course of one year, Three Rooms follows a young woman as she moves from a rented room at Oxford, where she's working as a research assistant, to a stranger's sofa, all she can afford as a copy editing temp at a society magazine, to her childhood home where she's been forced to return, jobless, even a room of her own out of reach. As politics shift to nationalism, the streets fill with protesters and news drip feeds into her phone, she struggles to live a meaningful life on her own terms, unsure if she'll ever be able to afford to do so. Hi, Joe. thanks so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Um... The delight of this novel for me as a millennial comes from its apt criticism of capitalism. So right from the start on page 12, your narrator reflects that it seemed ridiculous to Conde that I had accumulated substantial debt and a few degrees so that I might contractually cook a meal in the kitchen I could not actually afford to own for a small crowd of people in my age who spent their lives doing the same. You're also thinking about Virginia Woolf, you know, it's the title, it's in the title, the idea of a room of one's own and what that means both spiritually and materially. What do you think Woolf would think of this idea of nine to five just to stay alive? (laughs) Um, It's really difficult to say. I think I chose a room of one's own because there was so much of that essay that um, went against my argument as well as with it. So at some point, Wolf talks about the experience of freelancing and caging jobs. And um, she talks about just the basic precarity and anxiety that arise from that kind of um, situation. She talks about the poison and bitterness that brew in her stomach um, from not really being able to to have a secure, stable existence and financial setup. At the same time, though, um, I find Wolf quite blinkered in her approach to social commentary sometimes. So there's a part in the essay where she talks about the fact that, um, you know, her intellectual uh, existence only improved when her material uh, conditions did but the reason they improved is because she got an inheritance from her aunt <laughs> um 
you know, and so I, I'm always of two minds with Wolf, which is why I think she's so wonderful to return to. One is that she seems to um, completely understand the kind of social structures of, of any given time and interrogate them fully. And, you know, the other is that she is a product of her class, really, of kind of her parents' uh, education and upbringing and quite blind, really, to um, what existence might be for people who have uh, maybe less time to have concerns that are as existential as hers. You know, the woman who cooks for her, her maid, you know, at some point she's... uh, almost disparaging about the work of mothers in her essay um, of domestic labourers, essentially. And, um, yeah, I think it's really difficult (laughs) to know what she would say. She's a surprising and frustrating writer, but I think that's what makes her such great source material. Um, The narrator critiques the TV show Friends at some point. Um, The (laughs) arc of the Friends lives changed, but the times never did. Characters got better jobs, got married, upgraded the apartment and left for better housing, and the laugh track stayed the same. Was that meliorism? The definition of meliorism being the belief that the world can be made better by human effort. Do you think it can? Uh, Goodness. I I don't know, to be really honest with you. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess in a kind of... um, Oh, I I guess in a, like... It's a huge question. It's a huge question. Yeah, no, in a a left-leaning kind of, you know, optimistic way, uh, as someone who, you know, the, the kind of points of political engagement and awareness that I've had which have been overwhelmingly positive at the time although there's much to criticize after have been you know being in the states during Obama's presidency um here in the UK the uh rise of uh, momentum in our Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn who is kind of like a Bernie Sanders adjacent figure for mm-hmm. those who might not be aware um and you know those political movements definitely depend on um, human effort, on grassroots action done by individuals that contribute to, you know, a, a greater common good. And that's probably the sort of precept that, you know, is put forward by people who would lean towards uh, a certain version of socialism, right? Um, at the same time, though, I don't know, right now, um, you know, all that's kind of in my news feed is news about um, COP26 and the climate agenda. And the efforts of individuals in that case are falling far short of what any um, consequential action would actually look like. And so, you know, I guess it's it's difficult to say. Is is the short, long answer? I think that's a really good answer for a very big question. Um, <laughs> I know it, it's kind of awing, um, and it is disheartening. Maybe not the right word, but um, you know, especially when we're thinking of things like climate change, this idea of um, how far the individual can do in comparison to the reality of it being sort of an 
it's affecting so much more than the individual. That's exactly the point. Um, and, and, and I think I, I sometimes feel debilitated by that knowledge. Um, you know, you like to think that there's something you yourself can do to this sort of community problem, but um, the depth uh, of it is so immense, right? Right. And I think something, something I guess that the book uh, interrogates is this idea that although you would hope that, you know, a community made up of individuals um, who are going on climate marches or, you know, trying to like knock on doors and do grassroots, grassroots um, uh, political action, you'd hope that those would be helpful. At the same time, it's really difficult when there is a kind of niche or echelon of society where wealth is amassed to a kind of top 1% mm-hmm. and resources and um, I guess power is held by one group of people from generation to generation. It's simply handed on. And this idea of, um, I guess, um kind of inherited power or inherited wealth, which is also what Wolf talks about in her essay. Yeah, systemic is exactly the word. Um, uh, How how easy is it to change the realities of your existence when what you're coming up against is something that seems, that is really just so inherently untouchable? And that's why I think it's such a difficult question to answer whether, you know, power lies in, in... individuals who form kind of a group movement or whether you know some things really truly can't be changed are entrenched it's funny i mean one of my questions is that there's a segment in the book where you sort of criticize contemporary feminist oriented trendy novels and criticize is maybe not the right word but sort of you know highlight that criticism okay (laughs) um And how the narrator um, is self-aware about how she sort of gobbles them up, these trendy novels. I felt very seen in that part of the text as a (laughs) contemporary um, feminist reader. Um, And I wonder if you yourself don't, I mean, you yourself enter into that very trend with this book is, I guess, the question I wanted to ask you if you think that's happening. But in in lieu of also what we were just talking about, you're also sort of bridging this new genre um, of a novel that's not just the trendy feminist uh, take, but a, a almost capitalist fiction um, in a way. You know, you have this post-industrialization uh, text and, and these genres, but there's something sort of unprecedented happening now. I think um, so. I guess my question to you uh, is: A, do you think that this text is entering into that trendy um, feminist text that you you know are self-aware of, or and B, if it's also potentially creating a sort of new genre um, and what that could possibly mean when it comes to a genre of, of capitalism, fiction that speaks of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess uh, the book enters into the kind of trendy feminism in in two ways. And one, as you say, is a very kind of self-aware um, way um, in uh, kind of following and hopefully subverting the tradition, a kind of tradition of lifestyle writing or writing about lifestyle about you know material existence and what it takes to um i guess or interrogating rather uh, an idea of an aspirational lifestyle so the narrator is kind of constantly aware of um 
I don't know, th- things that she can like buy mm-hmm. to kind of comfort herself in her material existence, like fancy face washes or um, you know, stuff like that. And I don't, I don't know. I suppose the book enters into that trend in order to engage with it. I mean, there's right. there's a part towards the end where um, there's this figure who has written uh, a book in the genre of feminist self-help of, you know, I used to feel like a failure and then I realised that, you know, I had all the tools I needed to succeed. Um, the kind of book that really doesn't give you any tools, but... Um, it sort of markets itself as an every woman kind of, um, I don't know, guide um, in order to amass wealth for its author and keep its author in in an echelon of power. Um, And I think, or I hope that the mode of, um, I'm not sure if, satire or parody is the right word for it but Mm. for want of a better word let's call it that Mm -hmm. the mode of parody that the novel enters into at those moments means that it's um doing a kind of i i don't know i guess um analysis or it it, it sounds like what it's like to build a joke (laughs) honestly Um, yeah well i guess I hope it's a form of analysis. And as for uh, the kind of capitalist um, or industry genre, um, I think that's being built broadly um, by a series of often um, female writers over the Mm -hmm. past few years. The book that's coming to mind, um, although I don't know whether I'd compare mine to it, both out of like fear and um, out of um, kind of genre is Raven Leilani's luster, Mm -hmm. but both definitely have this kind of, you know, take place in a, in a workspace and deal with the minutiae of how a kind of digitized gig economy might affect the psychology and identity of a millennial character Mm -hmm. um and I think that's probably just the result of real life I think probably enough you know young female writers have been through the experience of um you know working in those conditions to now kind of chew through it in in novel form um I it's probably still too early to say what the outcome of all of that is. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't know that any singular one is kind of creating the genre. I think it's just sort of the coalescence of all of those books. It's funny that you bring up Lester. I, I was very lucky to be able to talk to Raven as well. And um, there are certainly parallels, although one in which in particular is, it, well, the narrator to me in Three Rooms uh, read sort of, uh, disembodied. Um, they always seem to be outside mm-hmm. of their experiences looking in. Um, and I, I, I think that that is a parallel that can be made with Lester as well. Um, so I'm wondering for you, was that an intentional narrative voice you actively tried to build? Or did that, was that the natural way of, of creating this character? 
Um, I think the difference between um, Luster and Three Rooms is that Luster has a really clearly delineated protagonist um, and it is very much um, a book that expresses its themes through uh, character whereas uh, Three Rooms is a book that attempts to express its themes through psychogeography and kind of place and location and so the reason that the protagonist of my book is kind of so disembodied is because the focus really wasn't meant to be on plot or voice or, um, you know, what characters look like or any of that stuff. It was meant to be on the locations that, um, that these, um, people find themselves in. And so the characters in my book, to my view are actually, you know, all the, there's more than three rooms in the book, all the rooms that, um, kind of crop up throughout and particularly like the the main three that are gestured at in the title um and it meant um having to form this very neutral narrative mode and that included having a sort of disembodied um narrative voice but also um finding these gray areas for the book to work in that would flesh out um how location is integral to the book. So, you know, abandoning conventional methods of dialogue within the novel Mm -hmm. and embedding speech within the text rather than delineating it with speech marks and uh, he said, she said kind of labels or, you know, sort of having this very um, upper middle class element um, to explore issues of race or class um, partly because, you know, a bulk of the book's criticism is aimed at either upper class or upper middle class institutions, but also because um, there's no kind of, it's the middle ground. It's, you know, the easiest place to kind of remain uh, fairly neutral from. And um, she's not neutral, though, at all. The narrator. Yeah, she has a stance. I I think. (laughs) She... Yes, no, she definitely does. And she does express it several times throughout. You know, there are points where she has breakdowns and says, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know when it became kind of unacceptable for me to want a certain set of things. So you're right, she does have a stance, but at the same time, she's a very ineffectual person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the reason that I have uh, one of the ending scenes be um, her looking at a, a kind of set of paintings of... England, which really whitewash and romanticize the country they've been used um, in Britain to kind of provide this very romanticized conservative view of Britain is because um, she sees them. She becomes aware of the fact that they're being used against her. um, And she attempts for a moment to see them as something ugly but ultimately chooses to go back to viewing them as something beautiful mm-hmm. and, and plays into the kind of political conceit that's working against her. Um, and I, I think that was a really pointed moment for me. It's a subtle one, but it's a really important one in the book because she is passive and she is kind of... I I wanted her to be kind of older than than me so in the book in my head she's sort of 
old enough to believe in the ideals that she's inherited from her parents' generation of um, kind of Blairism in England, which was predicated on social mobility and um, and globalization and kind of ethnic mixing, um, to believe in all of those values, but still be young enough not to have inherited a political landscape that really allows <laughs> any of those things. And so she's caught in a really impossible place. But, you know, when her flatmate tells her that she's, you know, going to go start knocking on doors in, in a bid to try and get a left-wing political party elected in Britain, she doesn't go with her, you know. When uh, someone at work tells her that, you know, she spends too much time on her phone and not enough time doing actually something useful for the causes that she believes in, she goes back to looking at her phone. Mm-hmm. And so for me, she she is, um, maybe neutral is the wrong word, but um, a kind of blank slate of a person. It's the kind of great failing that she has throughout. Um, she's actually shamed at one point in the novel, um, sort of forced to, to face a kind of humility when she reaches out to another character whose lifestyle she so heavily critiqued in order to then gain access from said friend. Um, I didn't like her at that moment, and I don't need to like characters. Uh, I'm not here for likable <laughs> characters, but it was a pitiable moment, and I'm wondering if you wanted to elicit pity from the reader, and if you did, how come? No, I didn't. I mean, I, this is really terrible because I, I did not write this book really to be read um <laughs> i i was like very unemployed at the time of writing and i'd gotten a rejection from a place that i'd wanted to work for for years and years and I, like it kind of cleaved me in two and i was getting really desperate at that point because mm-hmm. i was so unable to find a job um so i i to lick my wounds i was like well I'm going to stop applying for jobs for a while. I'm going to finish my book and I'll come back to, um, I'll come back to the kind of job market when I feel a bit stronger. And um, I mean, I don't think I started thinking of her as pitiable up until the point that people began telling me that they felt pity for her while reading. But I've had an interesting time listening to everyone's reactions in relation to her because, um, I, I mean, to me, she's sort of, again, I for me, the book is not about character. And so I have, like, actually very little opinion of her at all. Mm-hmm. For me, the focus of that book really was um, location um, in terms of the settings, Britain in terms of British politics and um, mapping the political landscape of the time. Um, And I, yeah, some people have found her hugely relatable. Some people absolutely loathe her and it stops their entire enjoyment of the book. Hmm. Some people pity her. Some people think that she's, you know, (laughs) a blueprint, which worries me. Um, (laughs) But what are you doing in that moment then, in in that scene? You know, you know, the one I'm referring to where she's like forced to face this kind of humility, like when she has to reach out to Ghislaine and or she doesn't have to, but she sends a message. What was the intent of of having that happen to her? um, uh, I suppose. (sighs) I suppose. 
it wasn't so much for her to come to any sort of realization because again her fatal flaw in the book is that she might but she disregards it Mm -hmm. it was more to signal to the reader that um to the reader myself really at the time that um she's spent the entire book idolizing this girl mm-hmm. who is is really kind of the embodiment of um internet culture and meme driven culture mm-hmm. this girl who is able to sort of um take over space and hold things as her own just by instagramming them and you know getting thousands of likes and you know who ends up in glossy magazines that this form of aspiration, which is pretty adjacent to the kind of feminist lifestyle literature that we've been discussing and which also manifests itself in the magazine that she works at, that it's a flawed ideal, that it doesn't really exist, that there's nothing really substantial or tangible about it. Because she spent the whole book stalking this girl's Instagram account, you know, Googling her, obsessing over her. And when it comes down to it, although she's formed what feels like this massive symbolism and meaningful relationship within herself towards Ghislaine, when it comes time to reach out and say hello, Ghislaine has no idea who she is. They've only met, you know, a handful of times before she doesn't remember. And the whole kind of house of cards in that moment should collapse. It is just a signal to say, I guess... I. You know, I, I wanted multiple flags throughout the book that said, think about what's been happening through, throughout the entire premise of this novel. Make up your mind. Don't just kind of take the book as entertainment or, um, you know, a kind of diversion. The point of the book is just to think about the case studies that have been handed to you and whether they're premised on things that are true or false. There's also self-awareness in the novel specifically about toxicity in publishing. You know, there's moments where the narrator is clearly being confronted with nepotism, asking to be particularly attentive, asked to be particularly attentive of an editor's friend's piece, etc. This is your debut Mm -hmm. novel. In what ways did any personal experience in publishing inform your taking on the role as a novelist? I've only worked freelance for a handful of publishers. Okay. So my experience for that, the protagonist works at a society magazine. I have also worked at a society magazine. But more broadly, um, what I was going off of were reported accounts. A lot of the book uh, and the protagonist herself um, are based on... Um, Tweets, basically. I spent a very long time amassing, collating tweets of people my age about how they felt about various news items, Mm -hmm. various industries, um, and allegations of nepotism are probably, you know, the least um, uh, controversial or salacious. It's like a pretty well-known issue within the industry now. Um, I, I think that's a good answer. Can you talk to me about the distinction between what the American literary domestic was and the UK's notion of home? Yeah, that, um, that kind of 
I guess came out of an observation of uh, I, I lived in the States um, for three years while I was growing up and then moved back to England and um, there was this really t- <laughs> it's not over but you know the turbulent time that was kind of like from 2016 onward where both sides of the Atlantic seemed to break down right um and and I suppose because those meltdowns were happening at the same time ours was Brexit and then the collective uh, and continual failures of our conservative governments and yours at the time was the election of Donald Trump um, there was this impetus to compare. And for a while, there was a lot more uh, sustained comparison between um, kind of uh, kind of cross-Atlantic conceptions of home in the novel, but it got too tangled and I cut it out. Um, but something that I kept was this notion that um, in America, um, I guess notions of home are kind of built or kind of fought for, attained, whereas notions of home in Britain are very much inherited. And there is such a massive difference in the way that um, America's handling of, um, of class, which is, you know, one of the factors that contributes most profoundly to your sense of belonging um, in this country, at least in the way that America handles class to the way Britain handles class. Um, And in America, there's this kind of, I guess, attitude of um, promise and prosperity, which is, you know, built on a false ideal, but nevertheless is really espoused. Um, And in Britain, it's, it's more sort of, quiet it's more you inherit your lot and then you kind of you see what you can do within your kind of class confines but that's that's pretty much it everything is very stagnant and unmoving um and it was just a way I guess to point out Again, one of the many ways in which in Britain, the, the, the crises that the book describes um, in 2018 and 2019 are a problem of um, wealth and influence and power being packed into um, an upper middle class and upper class uh, void that never kind of trickles down. I'm curious to know how or when a chapter is concluded or how you know it is concluded. There's a brevity in the ways in which the narration reads and the ways in which the segments of the book are divided. So I'm just sort of wondering, like, how did you know, like, this is, this is now, this chapter has now ended and we're moving on to the next. Mm, um, hmm. <laughs> this is strange to be talking about, like, so long after writing. Right. But, um, I think uh, part of that brevity comes down to um, the brevity of my writing process, which is that I write uh, between one and 2,000 words a day. Wow. And in that way, I can be sure that I will end up with a manuscript within like three or four months. Um, 
And I guess I didn't necessarily end each night kind of thinking I've written a thousand or two thousand words and this concludes the chapter for the day. But you can probably, I think if anyone kind of was bored enough, they could red pen their way through each kind of thousand or two thousand word section in the book. And it would pretty much kind of, you'd be able to close the book off into those brackets purely because (laughs) that's how I was writing at the time. But I was also... um, I um I don't mind you know a good long book. Um, I'm a massive fan of the kind of golden age Russian epic, mm-hmm. but in in terms of um, my own writing style, I guess I I thought I was going to be a nonfiction writer. I really thought that I would like publish books of essays and academic work rather than fiction. I hopefully still touch wood will. Um, so. A, a lot of my fiction is influenced by the tendencies I have in my nonfiction writing. It's probably what accounts for the very kind of polemical tone of the book and what accounts for those kind, that kind of, um, yeah, brevity. Um, I, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe in five or ten years, I'll write like a big sprawling kind of doorstopper, eight hundred page book. Um, but at the moment, that seems to kind of be how I work. Um, in a text that considers the significance of one's environment so much, the the ways in which you know a room of one's own can be broken down to all of these different rooms, um, sort of in a <clears throat> even ethereal kind of context. On page 87, you also identify the internet as one of these rooms. Quickly, I realized the absurd wealth of the places I had been in over the past year. The narrator reflects uh, rooms in which such discussions could be played with in theory, without urgency at any time, and then set aside to be taken up at a later date. The internet was one such room, a constant useless distress in my pocket. I had resolved to stop looking at my phone if I could help it to turn off my no- notifications and live less theoretically. Couldn't the same criticism be made about novels as well, not just the internet, novels as this very room, for instance? Yes, uh, and I think the book does gesture at that. Um, in the beginning of the second part, um, when she has just moved to London and she spends so much time reading all these um, slightly faux-feminist uh social commentaries and lifestyle pieces um you know rather than embed herself properly in the city that she's just moved to she chooses to stay on a sofa ignoring for the most part you know the world around her and then um you know just reading these books which she I think at some point explicitly says she feels guilty for doing and that's also a large part of why uh you know a significant chunk of the book is taken up with descriptions of the society magazine that she works at, um, which is also a a highly theoretical mode of existence. You know, it purports to report on the culture of the day, the politics of the day, the important issues of Britain in the day, um, but warps them into this strange kind of um, other world 
experience where, you know, in order to better your life, you must buy like 75 pound candles and thousand, tens of thousand pounds chandeliers. You know, if there is a In the words of of just millennial women, drag me. Like, (laughs) (laughs) well, I mean, yeah, but it's, it's, yeah, to to be really honest with you, uh, a close friend of mine recently gave me a diptyque candle. And um, I, I, I've just finished with it. I've just kind of burned out the last piece of wax in it. Right. And I had this moment where I turned to my boyfriend, who is just like a far wiser soul than me. He's older than me. And he's kind of like, he's a gardener. He's really practical. He's really like, he's so great. I turned to him and I was like, damn, that candle made every morning so luxurious. Maybe I should buy myself one of those candles. He was like, well, how much do they, do they cost? And I looked it up and the candle is something like close to a hundred pounds. And he just looked at me and he was like, are you insane? Do you realize like how many groceries you could get out of a hundred pounds? Why, why are we even looking at this candle? I was like, that's a good point. And, but there is something, I mean, it's, it's the success of these magazines to be able to drop stuff like diptyque candles into their pages and then, you know, sell the publication for a handful of dollars, you know, less than 10 bucks, Mm -hmm. which kind of gives this really aspirational content, a kind of reachable, relatable medium. Right. And, um, it is kind of, you know, the same as when I was Googling this candle. It is this moment of thinking, I could maybe buy this. Mm-hmm. I could maybe have this, you know, going through the pages of that magazine. That's that's the point. And it's, it's every bit as fraught and, you know, ill thought out as, you know, the protagonist's experience on the internet. And so I hope, I hope those parallels are kind of clear in the book. Thank you, Joe. This was great. Um, listeners, you can pick up a copy of Three Rooms on the Weird Arrow shelf at Library St. Henry Books. Um, thanks for listening, and thank you again for being here. Thank you. Thank you.